0: Oh, I need to put it up here.
1: Where would it go? There it is. All right. Is that more better? better. All right. I did that for my wife's sake, the more better part. Um, Bridgewater Center for Rehabilitation, 159 to 163 Front Street, Binghamton, New York. This is not right. Sorry. There we go. 159 to 163 Front Street, Binghamton, New York, 13905. And then make sure you have room number 206 on the envelope. So that zip code is 13905 in Binghamton and room number 206. If you want to send Robin a card, I know she would appreciate it very much. All right. Well, are you ready to get into God's Word? Got your fingers limbered up because we're going to be moving through some passages this morning. Uh, We're going to be talking about a topic, you know, it's one of those topics where I wasn't sure I wanted to preach on it, but it's so important that we try to understand it. I'm going to tell you this as we get started. You won't understand it by the time we're done. Doesn't that make you feel good? Well, pastor, why bother then? Well, because every little bit of information we have about this particular attribute of God is helpful to us. Um, th- this attribute is unique to Christianity, it's unique to our God, the one true God, and it is the triunity of God. So, anybody want to take a stab at defining the Trinity? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. Well, that's why we've gathered together this morning, so we can look at the pages of Scripture and try to see if we can come to a little bit better understanding. You know, the Trinity has been talked about for centuries. People have tried to explain it, and while there are decent explanations of it, they all fall somewhat short of helping us completely understand the triunity of our great God. There have been many illustrations or analogies made that try to help us understand it better. But none of them actually give us a full and complete explanation of this doctrine. So as you think about the triunity of God, we're going to get started this morning by taking a look at a video um, from that lovely web, website I've told you about in the past. It's called gotquestions.org. Um, so we're going to go ahead and watch that video, and they do a decent job of helping us understand what the Trinity is about.
0: The Trinity is a concept that is impossible for any human being to fully understand, let alone explain. God is infinitely greater than we are, and we should not expect to fully understand. The Bible teaches that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible also teaches that there is only one God. Though we can understand some facts about the relationship of the different persons of the Trinity to one another, ultimately is incomprehensible to the human mind. However, this does not mean that the Trinity is not true. But it is not based on the teachings of the Bible. The Trinity is one God, existing in three persons. Understand that this does not in any way suggest three gods. Keep in mind when studying this subject that the word Trinity is not found in Scripture. This is a term that is used to attempt to describe a triune God. Three coexistence, co-eternal persons who make up God. Of real importance is that this concept represented by the word Trinity does exist in Scripture. The following is what God's Word says about Trinity. First, there is one God. Second, the Trinity consists of three persons. In Genesis 1-1, the Hebrew pronoun Elohim is used. In Genesis 1:26, 3:22, 3 3-22, 11-7-9, Isaiah 6:8, 8 the plural pronoun for us is used. The word Elohim and the pronoun us are plural forms, definitely referring in the Hebrew language to more than two. While this is not an explicit argument in the Trinity, it does denote the aspect of plurality in God. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, definitely allows in Isaiah 48, 16, and 61, 1, the Son is speaking while making reference to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Compare Isaiah 61, 1 to Luke 4, 14 through 19. See that this is the Son speaking. Matthew 3, 16 through 17 describes the event of Jesus' baptism. Seeing in this passage is God the Holy Spirit descending on God the Son, while God the father his pleasure in the Son. Matthew 28, 19, and 2 Corinthians 13 14 are examples of three persons. Spoke to another person in the Trinity, the Father. For each member of the Trinity is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Fifth, there's subordination within the Trinity. Scripture shows that the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Father and the Son. The Son is subordinate to the Father. This is an eternal relation that does not deny the deity of any person of the Trinity. This is simply an area which our plain minds cannot understand concerning the infinite God. Concerning the Son, seated 22, 42. John 5, John 20, 21, and 1 John 4, 14. Concerning the Holy Spirit, see John 14, 16, 14, 26, 15, 26, 16, 7, and especially John 16, 13, 14. Lastly, 6, the individual members of the Trinity have different paths. The Father is the ultimate source or cause of the universe, divine revelation, salvation, and Jesus' human works. The Father initiates all of these things. The Son is the agent through whom the Father does the works, the creation and maintenance of the universe, divine revelation, and salvation. The Father does all these things through the Son and the function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means by whom the Father does the following works, creation and maintenance of the universe, divine revelation, salvation, and Jesus' works. Thus, the Father does all these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. There have been many attempts to develop illustrations However, none of the pilot illustrations are completely accurate. The egg and the apple fails, and so that the shell, white, and yolk are parts of the egg, not the egg in themselves. Just as the skin, flesh, and the seeds of the apple are parts of it, not the apple itself. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not parts of God. Each of them is God. The water illustration is somewhat better, but it fails to adequately describe the Trinity. Liquid, vapor, and ice are forms of water. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not forms of God. Each of them is God. While these illustrations may give us a picture of the Trinity, the picture is not entirely accurate. An infinite God cannot be fully described by a finite illustration. The doctrine of the Trinity has been a divisive issue throughout the entire history of the Christian Church. (laughs) While the core aspects of the Trinity are clearly presented in God's words, some of the side issues are not as explicitly clear. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but there is only one God. That is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Beyond that, these should are to a certain extent not essential. Rather than attempting to fully define the Trinity with our finite human minds, we'd be better served by focusing on the fact that God's greatness and is infinitely higher. nature. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsel? Want me for more? Subscribe so you don't miss the next video. Visit that question.org for more great content, time, and check out the details section below this video. There are several.
1: So the only problem with that video is he talks very fast, okay? Um, I used to talk really fast, too, until my wife slowed me down. Um, And then talking in a different culture where you have to really work so people can understand the way you talk also helped me slow things down a little bit. So if you want to check that out again, gotquestions.org, type in in the search area Trinity, and you can go back and listen to that over again if you want. There's also a diagram, but before we get to the diagram, let me just throw this out there. Why do we talk about the Trinity? Why does God include the Trinity or the idea of the triune Godhead in Scripture? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29 is a great verse. I love it. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law so the trinity is kind of one of those secret things that we don't really understand it doesn't mean we shouldn't try but what it does mean is we don't have to spend all of our life trying to figure out the Trinity. Okay, That's one of those things that we accept by faith, we move on, we believe it, we we, we try to uh, put it into practice in our life and that's what we want to do this morning. Why is the Trinity so important to us? I believe the Trinity helps us live a better Christian life and while we can't completely understand it, the things that we can understand it should be an encouragement to us in our walk with the Lord. So, uh, I think the next thing on the screen is going to be that picture. Uh, You also have it on your bulletin and it does a fairly good job of trying to i'm going to move here timothy i don't know if you can catch me all the way over here by the screen or not but obviously we have one god okay and and the god and god exists in the father and in the son and in the spirit but let us understand that the son is not the spirit the spirit is not the father the father is not the son but they are all god you got it all figured out should we stop right here no, we'll keep going on. Okay, but, but that's kind of a little diagram to help us kind of start to think about the complexities of the triune God. And by the way, I don't have a problem with the word Trinity, but I prefer the, the, the phrase triune God, okay? Uh, just because it helps us understand a little bit more of the nature of our great God. First of all, as the video said or suggested, there is plurality within the Godhead. And while I say that, let me be quick to say that we absolutely affirm the fact that there is one God. It's clearly taught in Scripture, there's one God, there's not, there's not three gods, there's only one. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39... Scripture says therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other okay so in the in the pentateuch the first 5 books of the bible Moses clearly declares that God is one there is No other besides the one true God. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, when God is describing himself to Israel, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Moving on several uh 100 years later, 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 22, we read, "Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any god besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears." So the Israelites had got come to the conclusion that yes, there is one God. We call that monotheism. There's not a multiplicity of gods that are, are worshiped or nor, nor should they be considered as gods. We move to the New Testament and Jesus is talking. It says in Mark chapter 12 verse 29, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus himself affirms that there is only one God. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is writing and he says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now again, we've used that verse before. This is not talking about um, pantheism or polytheism or anything like that. It is the fact that there is one God. He is the creator. He, de- he deserves supremacy. He's the supreme being of, of everything. He's in us, especially those of us who have put our faith and trust in him. And then Paul, when he's writing to young Timothy, he says in chapter two, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So to believe in the triune God does not in any way imply that you believe in more than one God. That's, that's essential as we start thinking about this idea of the triune God. In the video, the name for God, Elohim, was mentioned. And that's where we're going to camp out for a little bit. The name Elohim. When we started studying the names of God um, many, many months ago, we encountered that name Elohim. It is the very first name we find for God in the Bible. Can somebody quote for me Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Who wants to do that? Okay. In the beginning, God, that's the word Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. This word for God, this name for God, is the most common name for God in the Bible, It's used over 2,500 times in the Jewish scriptures or in the Old Testament. It also is used as a prefix for many of the other compound names for God. Anybody have uh, an example of one of those compound names of God? There was a popular song written in the 80s using one of the compound names starting with L and then another name that followed it. El Shaddai, okay? El Shaddai. And, and do you know what that name means, El Shaddai? It means God Almighty. There's another name, El Elyon, which means God Most High. And, and one of my favorite names, at least to say it, is El Rohi. El Rohi, the God who sees. Remember Hagar when she thought she was all alone and didn't have any hope? She was in despair and God showed himself to her as El-Rohi, the God who sees. Hagar, I know where you are. I know what you're going through. So when you're in those battles and the difficulties of life and you feel like you're all alone and all you have is despair, remember El-Rohi, the God who who sees you. And, and you know what? He sees, and the great thing about the fact that he sees is that he acts, and he cares, and he loves, and he takes care of you. Elohim is the infinite, all-powerful God that is characterized by awesome acts. Acts like we see in Genesis chapter one, where he creates the world, the universe, everything that there is. In the beginning, God created, The heavens and the earth. The very first verse of the Bible introduces us to the idea of God. Yet, as we we are introduced to this God, we see that there's a plurality within the Godhead. As we make our way through that first chapter in Genesis, we see the conversation that takes place in verse 26, where it says, Then God, Elohim, said, Let us... You know that word us is a pronoun. What kind of pronoun is that word? It's a plural pronoun. So God, Elohim, said let us, there must be more than one, let us make man in, here's another one, our image, a plural pronoun again, after our likeness. So as the creation of the world and mankind is recorded for us, we see God introducing the idea of the fact that the one true God, the creator God, has a plurality in his composition. So we see the name Elohim. We also see the elements of the triunity of God. As we get started in our study, let's start with a definition of the triunity of the one God. Ryrie does a good job giving us a simple explanation or definition of this complex truth. He says, there is, only, there is one only and true God. That's a little kind of a different way to say it, but he says, there is one only and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. So the three persons that make up the triunity of God are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Again, let me remind you of that graphic that is on your note page. There are not three different kinds of God. God the the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God, and, and none of them are the other one. They're all distinct and unique and have specific responsibilities that they carry out within the Godhead. So as we work our way through our study this morning, we're going to see that the idea of a person is not what we might think in regard to the triune Godhead. When we think of a person, we think of an individual independent from others, unique to him or herself. That's what we think of when we think, I'm a person, I'm I'm an individual, And and individualism is very high on the on the priority list of people today. They they want to be individuals, they want to be lumped into uh one particular entity. So God, however, when we talk about him and the idea of the person, the triune Godhead, uh persons comprised the triunity of God are not quite like that. Rather, the three persons are inseparable. Independent and eternally united in one divine being. That's who our great God is. Well, let's talk about the proof of triunity as we continue to move forward this morning. While it's true that the word trinity or triunity are not found in Scripture, that doesn't mean that it's not a biblical truth. There are a lot of words that we use in Christianity that are not found in the pages of Scripture, but the the thought behind them or the idea of them are certainly found in the pages of Scripture. There are verses that show us that each member of the triune Godhead are indeed God. They are divine. They are even, there are even passages where all three are mentioned together. So as we think about the triunity of God, let's not make it more complicated than it has to be. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a verse that was mentioned in the video earlier in, in, in the morning. We find in Matthew chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen in the same place the the triune Godhead showing us that there must be three separate essences. Listen to that passage as I read it for you. Matthew chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen says, "And when Jesus was baptized." There's Jesus, there's the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God. There's the second member of the triune Godhead, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, here's the third one, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am. And well pleased. So we have God the Son being baptized, we have God the Spirit descending like a dove upon Christ, and then we have the voice of the Father booming down from heaven saying, this is my Son. Listen to what he has to say. So it's easy to prove that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Those three We have already defined as being the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We want to see now each one of them, the fact that Scripture says that each one individually are divine. There's an easy, it's easy to see as we search our way through Scripture. First of all, we'll start with the Father, the deity of the Father in Isaiah 64. Interesting thing is we're going to start with each, the deity of each one, proving it from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 8, but now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You see, the prophet Isaiah is reminding us and reminding the Israelites that the Father is the one that made us and has the right to do with, them, do with us as he pleases. The Father can do with mankind and each individual of mankind as he pleases. It's like a potter. I don't know if anybody's ever done pottery, but you take a lump of clay and you put it on the wheel and you start spinning the wheel and you start forming it and you start making it into the vessel that you want it to be and you look at it and you say, oh, I don't like this, so what do you do? You clump it all back up together and you start over again. Why do you have the right to do that? Because you're the one who's making the vessel. If you don't like it, you can start over again. God has the right as the potter to do with the clay as he pleases. The prophet Malachi, he wrote for a very specific reason. Malachi wrote after Israel had returned from the captivity. He's writing to rebuke the Israelites because they departed so quickly from who God is, the truth that they knew about the triune God. So he's writing in a rebuke and he says to them, to remind them of the covenant relationship they have with the Father. He writes to them and he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? When then, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So he wants to know if God is one and he is, and he is the father, he did create us. That should have an impact on the way we do life with one another. We should love one another. We should care for one another. We should be faithful to one another. And if we don't, Isaiah, or Malachi says to the Israelites, you are profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, you and I don't live under the same covenant as the Israelites did in the Old Testament, but you know what? We are in a covenant relationship with the one one true God. And I will say to you this morning that if you and I don't live within our covenant relationship with one another, within the the bounds of Christianity, loving and caring and ministering to the needs of one another, you know what? We're just as guilty as the Israelites and profaning the covenant under which we live. Now, there's a lot of more, there's a lot more verses we could look at in the Jewish scriptures, but let's jump to the, the New Testament or the Christian scriptures. You know, we like to call the New Testament our scripture. So let's jump to the New Testament. Take a look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, where the Apostle Paul writes this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for all, for whom we exist. The one Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. That's very clear to us that there is one God and Father of us all. And he also mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, which isn't our focus at this point. But we're talking about the deity of the Father. And Paul says, there is one God, the Father. And he also mentions Jesus Christ. Then there's the words of Peter that he recorded for us in his first epistle where he writes this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Boy, wouldn't that, that would be a great passage just to camp out at. All the amazing blessings that are ours, excuse me, from the Father through Jesus Christ. Most namely, there is our salvation. And we're going to spend some time at the end of our message talking about how the triune Godhead should help us live out our salvation. You see, by the very words and actions of our Heavenly Father, it is clear that the Father does the things that only God can do, which makes Him deity without a doubt. So, we've settled the Father, let's move on to the divinity, if you will, of Jesus Christ the son of God. Again, we start with the prophet Isaiah, where he speaks of the one that will not only bring the good news of reconciliation, but actually is the good news. So we have Jesus Christ who brings this good news, and he doesn't just send it, but he brings it, and he places it right here in front of us for everyone to see. The prophet Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now, what is Isaiah saying? He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the one who is going to be the fulfillment to the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who is going to be the seed of woman who will crush the head of Satan. So Isaiah gives us more information on this one who is to come. We see that Jesus claims that he is the fulfillment of this passage over in Luke chapter 4. He's in his hometown. He's in Nazareth. And he's in the synagogue. And he takes the scroll that's been handed to him. And this was not by coincidence. It was God's plan that they would reach into the scroll rack and pull out the one that has Isaiah in it. And so Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he starts to read and he says, and he, as he was handed the scroll, the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sound familiar? We just read it from the book of Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted this morning? Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you feel like you're stuck in, in some kind of captivity? Well, Jesus is the one who proclaims liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Great passage of scripture, right? Jesus closes up the scroll of the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Now, this rocks their world, okay? This just blows their mind. He says, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Hallelujah! The Messiah is here. The Christ is here has come. But instead of being full of joy and full of gratitude, they begin to say, who is this man? We gotta figure out a way to get rid of this guy because he's claiming to be someone he's not. Well, yes, he is. He is everything that was promised. He was everything that was prophesied. You see, by claiming to fulfill these promises of the Messiah, Jesus is claiming to be God. This is just one of many times that he claimed deity and why the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy. The Jewish scriptures prophesied the coming of the Messiah, the promised one who they knew would be God. And the New Testament, the Christian scriptures speak of Jesus being the one who does the works of the Messiah. Therefore, he is the one true God. There's another claim by Jesus in the Gospel of John where he's in a conversation about him being the good shepherd and he claims to be God in John chapter 10 starting with verse 24 John 10 24 Jesus says, or the, here's the account of the good shepherd and Jesus speaking. So the Jews gathered around him and he said and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So some of them are getting it, some of them are beginning to understand. Hey, this man is qualified. This guy has all the credentials. This guy could be the Messiah. So Jesus, will you tell us? Are you the Messiah? Straightforward question. And here's his response. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Here it is. I and my Father are one. Wow. What a claim by Jesus. So, like the Father, we could look at so many other verses where Jesus either claims to be God or is said to be God by either the Father or someone else. But just a few verses this morning to show to us and prove to us that Jesus is indeed divine. We see that he is none other but God in the flesh. And now, let's take a brief moment to look at the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're starting with the prophet Isaiah, and he establishes the fact for us that the Holy Spirit is God. The prophet writes this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If we go back to day, uh, to verse two of the account of the creation week, we have this said about the Spirit. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, it's significant that we read the book of Judges to find out the Holy Spirit as well. Because you know why? We have God, the Holy Spirit, and creation. We have him in the prophets. And now we also see that he is present when the Israelites are kind of struggling with life. Struggling with who they are. What is going on? They're, they're, they don't really want to walk with God, but they know that if they don't walk with God, judgment is going to come. So as we take a look at the book of Judges, we see the Holy Spirit there as well. Who did the Israelites cry out to when they needed deliverance? Every time they needed, you know, they, it was a cycle. Thirteen times they found themselves walking around in this circle. So every time they sinned, they did what was right in their own eyes. God judged them, brought in a judgment upon them. And it was a foreign nation. The foreign nation took them captive or took over the land. And then what do they do every time? Who do they cry out to? They cry out to God. And in their minds, they're crying out to the Father. What is going on, God? We want you to deliver us. We're sorry for our sins. There's repentance. There's confession. There's, there's a crying out to God. At least twice in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3 and Judges chapter 6, we see the mention of the Holy Spirit getting the credit For the deliverance, first with a guy by the name of Othniel, when the Israelites were under the captivity of a Mesopotamian king. Um, This is where I should ask somebody to read the verse, but I won't do that, okay? The spirit of the Lord was upon him, that's Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaneum, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, and his hand prevailed over Cusha Rishathaneum. Why was Othniel successful in Judges chapter 3? Because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's why he was successful. Can I tell you, if you and I are going to be successful in our walk with God in the Christian life, the Spirit of the Lord must be evident in our lives. I didn't say upon us because we have the Holy Spirit. We get all of the Holy Spirit we're ever going to get the day we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. So we have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit ha- have all of us? Am I yielding myself to the work of the Holy Spirit? You see, Othniel was successful because the Spirit of the Lord was working through him. If you flip over to Judges chapter 6, you see a guy by the name of Gideon. We all know about Gideon. Gideon was a, was a, was a man who kind of goes down in history with a mixed reputation. Uh, some would count Gideon as a doubter. You know why, right? Because he puts the fleece out, and he says, God, make the fleece such and such. Now, most of us would be okay with if he just did it once, right? But God does it once, and then he says, mm, You know, God, I'm not quite sure. I still want to do this. I want to put my fleece out again and do the opposite of what you did the first time. So he puts God to the test, not just once, But he does it again, and God answers. This is prior, though, to his testing God in that way. And prior to even his call. It says here, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abizarites were called out to follow him. Again, the deliverance of the Lord God is seen through Gideon. They cried out to God and God says, "The Spirit." He sent the Spirit to be upon Gideon to clothe him and to send him out to bring deliverance to the nation. It's important that we see who Gideon really is, though, in Scripture. You see, we, we see him at very least as a doubter, and at the worst, we see him as a coward. Oh, I'm not sure, God, I can do this. You, you, you you better pick somebody else. No, if God calls you to do something, excuse me, if God calls you to do something, He will empower you. He will enable you to do that. Again, the deliverance of the Lord God is not because of who Gideon is, right? Because he wasn't much in and of himself. It was because of the Holy Spirit empowering Gideon to do the work. You see the little interesting side note here? When you are clothed in the spirit of the Lord, or when when it's evident that you're walking in the Lord, you will accomplish the things that the Lord calls you to accomplish. And you know what? Did you catch that? It says, and -and so-and-so followed Gideon. When you're submitting to the Lord, don't be surprised that people are willing to follow you. The example that you have set. And the fact that it is evident in your life that you are submitting yourself to the work of the Spirit. Well, we can, we can jump to the New Testament uh, and, and take a look at some of the things there that we see that the Holy Spirit is indeed divine. We're only going to look at one passage, but I want to mention the book of Acts. We've talked about this a little bit on Sunday night. Um, how many people know the full title of the book of Acts? Just a little warning, it's a trick question. Okay, the Acts of the Apostles, okay, that's the full title of the book of Acts. I'm not a fan of that title. I much rather call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. So you can take a survey of the book of Acts, and you can see the Holy Spirit is working and working and working. He is doing all kinds of things in the book of Acts. So we don't have time to do that survey, but that's a survey that you can uh, take on your own. In fact, I went to my bookshelf. Remember I said it's good to have more than one Bible in your house? I went to my bookshelf, and I pulled out six Bibles off my bookshelf, six different Bibles. And I looked at them, and out of the six, four of them called it the Acts of the Apostles. Which, again, is not a bad title because God is using the apostles, but he's working through them through the, with the Holy Spirit. And it's very evident that the Holy Spirit is enabling the apostles to accomplish the great things that they accomplish to establish the foundation of the local church through which God is going to change the world. I mean, the book of Acts tells us that the, the Christians turned the world upside down. They had such an impact. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was active and changing them and turning them into ambassadors for the cause of Christ. But I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus, where we will take a look at an amazing ministry of the Holy Spirit. The book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And Paul is describing our salvation, the nature of our salvation. Where, it's co- where it has come from, how it's accomplished. We get to Titus chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 4, where Paul writes this to another young preacher, a young man who is, um, has a great task set before him. Paul leaves Titus in Crete to set the church in order, to teach and train and to disciple men who will go into the ministry to be pastors throughout Crete. That's a pretty significant responsibility that Titus is given to him. So Paul wants to make absolutely sure, certain that we know, and Titus knows, what our salvation is all about. Because you can't be a pastor if you don't understand salvation, right? Because that's what God has called you to communicate to others. So Paul says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. There's another passage of Scripture that has a lot of stuff packed into it. In our study on the Holy Spirit, Ben correctly pointed out that the Holy Spirit is the agent of new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings new life to the child of God. But in Acts chapter 4, it clearly states that there is salvation in only one name. And that one name, it says, is the name of Jesus, who is God. And of course, now we have the, the plan of salvation. If you're going to be saved, you have to do it God's way. Uh, this plan of salvation is ordained from eternity past. And as we move through the scriptures, we come to a place where we see the Holy Spirit is the one who brings new birth. What do you get from all of this? Well, we get that our very salvation is proof of the triunity of our great God. Everyone has a specific role to play in our salvation. The God, God the Father planned it in eternity past and he ordained that his son Jesus Christ would come to the earth and take on human flesh in the form of a baby born of a virgin and then he would live that life perfect and holy and sinless and go to the cross and die for you and I. That's the son's role in all of this. Completely submitting himself to the will of the Father dying on a cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to get into that as we study the Easter season coming up. But the Son, God, in the flesh, goes to the cross, takes upon himself my sins and your sins and the sins of mankind. And then the Holy Spirit makes that real to you and I. You see, there's a lot of people that have a knowledge about Jesus dying on the cross. But until the Holy Spirit Regenerates and washes you and renews you, that knowledge means nothing. You can't accomplish anything in your life. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all divine in their nature, meaning they're all God. But let me remind you again of the words of God to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy when God is addressing the congregation of Israel. He identifies himself in chapter 6, verse 4 again. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if we put it all together, the plurality of God from the very beginning by use, by the use of the name Elohim, the awesome works and the statements from both the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and the, in the Christian scriptures, we clearly see that there is a plurality. In fact, there is a triunity in the Godhead. They state that each member of the Godhead is indeed divine. And we see the truth that the triunity of God unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture. But we can't close this morning without thinking about and understanding that there's perfect unity in the triunity of God. There's perfect unity in the triunity of God. It's clearly seen from God's description of himself that there's only one God. Even though the one is manifest in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, you know this, there is no infighting in the Godhead. There is no frustration from the Father to the Son. There's no struggle for superiority within the Godhead. And to take it one step further, we see that there is a complete unity, there is a complete uh, cohesive purpose that God is working at in the triunity of the Godhead. David Hawking puts it this way He says, There is unity among them to the point that it appears there is only one person talking, when in fact there are three persons who are distinct and yet they ha- see themselves as one. They are so unified that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit see themselves as one. Why? Because they are. One, So because of this unity within the triunity of God, there are things that are true for you and I as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I believe the church, the body of Christ, there are certain things that are true for us within, because of the triunity of God. There's a song I want to play for you. And I think it does a great job compelling us to take advantage of the unity of the triunity of God. If you're watching online this morning and you want to hear the song, there's a link. It's included in the in the comments section of our of our online ser- section this morning. Uh, you can click on that link. And I think if we if we don't do it this way, uh, Facebook might boot us off for playing a song that uh, that that whatever they don't they don't want us to use without permission um so it's a song that you find on youtube it's called we believe by the newsboys ryan go ahead and play that for us the the words are going to come up on the screen and and i want you to think about things that you and i should be living out as a result of the triunity of god You see, the thing about that song is that it ties it all back to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe. In the very first verse of the song, they sang, in this time of desperation, when all we know is doubt, doubt and fear, there is only one foundation. What's the foundation? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, because of the triunity of God, we know that we have hope in desperate times. And we have comfort in the midst of fear. You and I have nothing to fear. Why? Because of the triune Godhead. We know, according to the song, that we live in a world of brokenness. And as they remind us, in this broken generation, boy, that's not too... Discredit anybody, but it's just stating a fact. In this broken generation, when all is dark, you, triune God, help us see. What do they help us see? They help us see the light, the light that brings us hope, and the light that brings us peace, the light that brings us salvation. And we have seen from our study this morning the triunity of God is at the very heart of our salvation. They go on to say, There is only one salvation. We believe. We believe in that chorus. It's all about the triunity of God. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. As we've mentioned already, the Easter season is upon us and the triunity made the greatest gift to mankind a reality. The Father planned it. The Son is the one that is all focused about who brings about our redemption and reconciliation through His death. But it didn't stop with just the crucifixion. The song reminds us we believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. Hallelujah. And he's coming back again. Doesn't that make you excited that he is coming back again? It could be today. Yes, it could be. Amen. We wouldn't even mind not celebrating Easter if Jesus came back today. He's coming back again. You see, the triunity of God drives you and I to more than just talking about and singing about our faith. It drives us to be people of faith. So the song says, so let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing. We sing some great songs, but our faith has to be more than just songs and words that we say. Let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing. And in our weakness and temptation, we believe What do we believe? We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. And we believe in God the Spirit. We believe in the triunity of our God. And so we don't have to fear our limitations because we know that God is great and God is powerful and God is mighty and God is displayed in the triunity of it all. And as a result, we can pray and we can trust God to use us so that the lost be found and the dead be raised. In the here and now, let love invade. It is our living hope that the church will live loud. And God will say, we believe in this great God. We believe. And we'll live as though the gates of hell will not prevail. For the power of God has torn the veil. Don't you love that? You know, that veil in the Holy of Holies was what separated God from man. And when Jesus hung on the cross and he said it is finished, God himself tore the veil. No man tore the veil. God tore the veil and he rent it in two like no man could ever do. The gates of hell will not prevail for the power of God has torn the veil. Now we know your love will prevail. You see, because of the triune Godhead and his defeat of Satan, he also defeated the grave. He defeated death. He defeated hell. And we know, are you ready for this? We know he's coming back. He's coming back again. Man, I, I, that's gotta get you fired up for God. Fired up to do what God has called you to do and and not relying on yourself to do it. Relying on the fact that the triune Godhead, which makes him all powerful, which makes him awesome, which makes him everywhere present, because of the triune Godhead, we don't fail. God works through us. Is the triunity of God an important attribute? You better believe it is. It's foundational. You see, it's the triunity of our great God that makes everything about our God click. It makes him the awesome God that he is. So will you say with me this morning, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. What a great God you and I serve. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are excited. We are thrilled to be part of your family. Because you are the triune God. You are the the God who gives us purpose in life. Father, as we study this idea of the triunity of God, we are encouraged understanding that the limits that we might have as human beings are not at all overcoming. They're not overpowering. Father, because of the triunity of God, we can accomplish whatever it is that you have called us to accomplish. We can indeed be overcomers. We don't have to be distraught, we don't have to be cast down. David said, "Why so downcast, O oh my soul?" We don't have to be downcast because we can put our faith, our hope and our trust in the one triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit that we believe in who he is and what he has accomplished. Thank you, Father, for your love and your care, for your continued blessings. Thank you for being triune and yet unified in that triunity. We thank you for these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, oh, we're so excited that he's coming back and wouldn't even be upset if you came back today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
2: Our last song this morning is, Immovable Our Hope Remains.